Yeah. You guys rolling? Rolling on the river? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Why are we here? We are here because it's the Acme Writing Academy. Coming to you from Acme Broadcast Headquarters in Venice Beach, California. This is Rick Crisman welcoming you, the listener, to today's discussion where we're going to be talking about place. I'm first reminded of a uh, craft talk that I heard poet and short story writer Jack Driscoll give once about place and the importance of place in writing. And one note of his, his talk was that place was so important that people would be named according to their place. For instance, you had Jesus of Nazareth or St. Francis of Assisi. Erasmus of Rotterdam. That's the best. <laughs> Anyhow, it occurs to me that we're all just in this kind of weird space together, cyberspace, but we're actually spread out all over the country and uh, probably makes sense to introduce the people tonight in terms of where they're at. So first of all, we have Mike Magnuson of Menasha, Wisconsin. That's right. I'm here in Menasha, Wisconsin on the north shore of Lake Winnebago, it's the same size as the Dead Sea. It's it's the name Winnebago is, is Elgon. You know you're really breaking. You're really breaking up there, Mike. Am I still breaking up? Yeah. yeah, you have like a. It's the rate at which his internet's working right now that's causing the problem. It's his FPS. I guess that's a function of your place, isn't it? okay next we have we have marcello vasquez of lighthouse point florida good evening good evening gentlemen i just got back from my other place which is argentino rosario so i grew up here in lighthouse point uh, south florida between fort lauderdale and boca raton the way i figured out that i lived in lighthouse point is because of the lighthouse we go out fishing there's an inlet that comes right out of here called Hillsborough Inlet. And you go out and we find a spot about a half a mile out. And we look for a steeple, which is the Presbyterian Church. And then from we hit that spot, we know it's a great grouper and snapper spot. Drop, you know, drop a, a deep line and you're, you're hooking up. Then you look back at the other side to the right, and there's the lighthouse. And then you figure out it's just, it's just between those two markers. Nice. So fisherman rose, look, rose looking for landmarks. Yeah. to find our spots in the ocean. Okay, we've got uh, uh, Bob Clark of Mankato, Minnesota. Home of the largest mass execution in United States history. December 26, 1862. 38 Lakota Indians were hung all at the same time. Imagine that, too, the yeah. day after Christmas. But wow. quite some time ago. Well, It's also the home of uh, Minnesota State University. It's a valley town, the confluence of the uh, Minnesota and Blue Earth Rivers. Right, and, and incidentally, that's where Laura and Pa Ingalls used to go to the big city when they yes, lived in is. Walnut Grove. Yeah. And it's also where uh, Sinclair <laughs> Lewis wrote most of Main Street. <laughs> he, he was watching a house in the winter for a couple that was in Europe. He drank all. He drank their wine cellar dry while he was there, and. Uh, it was just right across the street from where I worked for 40 years. Is that a function of place as well, drinking that much wine over the winter? Is. You're drinking wine at somebody else's place. That's economical. It's well known that Lewis had a bit of a drinking problem. So who have I got left here? Jim. Jim Frank of Lakeport, Michigan. Yeah, you know, uh, 
We live right here by Lake Huron, which, you know, back in the day used to be the frontier between France and Britain. And and if you uh, uh, know anything about Michigan, you know that Michigan, it looks like a mitten. We live at the base of the thumb. Talk to the hand, right? Yeah, it's right here at the base of the thumb. Uh, okay. Okay, well, you guys know I'm Rick Crisman, and I'm here, and I'm Rick Crisman of Santa Monica, California, but we're here in Venice, and actually, I'm not, I don't, I don't know, sometimes I think I'm really more Rick Crisman of Kansas, because I, I think I've, just like, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he was, not to compare myself to Jesus, but he was, he was, he was born in Bethlehem, as a matter of fact, but still, he's Jesus of Nazareth, but I guess I'm doing it backwards, so. Okay, I'm Rick of I'm Rick of Santa Monica. Where, where, so is there a Bethlehem, Kansas? <laughs> you know what? I'm sure there's a Bethlehem, Kansas. Is it? Isn't there a Nazareth, Kansas? Is that where you're saying? Jesus? <laughs> right. Uh, okay. <laughs> the well, thanks for joining us tonight. God, and, uh, we'll, place. As we as we say goodnight to our <laughs> place challenged crew. <laughs> you know, we actually we we've been talking about this whole business of place for a week now, writing about it online and everything. And I want to start off with reading something that Mike Magnuson wrote. And that is this. If we are diligent about rendering place, we have access to millions of specific details to earn the world where our narratives occur. So, Mike, what about that? Can you break that down a little? Well, this may seem like the wrong way to approach it. We're all talking about where we live. Okay. And what it's like where we live. Yep. But really, if you think about our job as a writer is to prove the world we see in our head and our stories to somebody else who's reading it. And when we teach creative writing, when we're developing our craft, we tend to favor, you know, that kind of thing where it's really specific, you know, certainly because our, our task as writers is to be really detailed, you know, so like, so place and the detail to prove place, which ultimately reveals character you know, actually serves as a tool to generate all these details we need to prove the world that we're trying to prove. So I think it works two ways. You've got, you've got your, you're providing evidence that you, the author, were there because right. you saw that it happened on Fifth Street, not on a street, for instance. Right, credibility. And you're creating details as inventory that you can use later, like you described mm -hmm. You show us a street sign, and who knows, maybe on page 27, a, a, a car runs into that street sign, for instance. You do. you gotta have, you got to have stuff. And the best way to find stuff is in the, in the world around the characters. <laughs> let, me, let me pose a question to you, to you. When you're thinking of story, let's just narrow it down to thinking of the novel, what do you think of first? What, when any ideas come to you, do you think of... Uh, uh, place first, or do you think of, of character? The kind of character he is would determine what place he's in. It's back to my old chicken and egg argument. That's right. Myself, I've, I've gone both ways on it. I've thought of character, and then the place developed, what type of place he was going to be in. And I've also written with place in mind and the type of character I need to put in there. Yeah, I think it is chicken and egg. I can, I can remember being in a workshop with... Uh, uh, the writer John McNally, and he 
gave us an exercise. He said, think about a particular place that you hold dear in your memory. And now picture yourself in one specific spot and simply spend five minutes writing what you see. Okay. Like I'm standing next to a pond and there's a windmill and I see a farmhouse and a cow and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, now take it out one step wider to where you're remembering things all around the farm. You know, the house, the car, the combine, the barn, your grandma. Now, take it out one step further from that in time and space and tell us about the, think about the surrounding towns, how it is that you came to be on this farm, what, what your father did, or was your mother born there, or so on and so forth. So we wrote all this stuff down. And then he said, okay, now go for your homework, go write the first page of a story informed by this. And I'll tell you, it's the easiest story start I ever got. On the other hand, it be, the story itself began with an action of Frank taking a sharpshooter's shovel and snapping the neck of a snapping turtle next to a pond. So there you go. Hmm. Chicken and egg. Turtle soup. Yeah, I know. A lot of venues lend themselves to be written about more than others. Drew? Well, there was, I, was, I was in a workshop in Boca Raton, FAU, and most of the students were from up north somewhere. So I was like, two of the guys were people from real from Florida. And the biggest complaint, creative writing, was there are no seasons in South Florida. It's like, it's like one summer. You know, we don't have winter, we don't have spring, you know, they're complaining. Sure. And I go, you know something? Because you have to look closer here. That's right. If you're from here and you see it, you know when it's winter but a change of the ties that are coming in because the Gulf Stream is going further out in the winter. And there's a color change in the intercoastal. There's a, uh, there's a blossom tree we called the snook tree because we knew when it would blossom, that's when the snook would come out from the canals, these fish that we would go for, and mm-hmm. they would proliferate. The you got to look. You got to look differently. You yeah. got to look closer. There's more, there's more season here than you can ever imagine. You know, the same is true of Southern California. When I first moved here, it was like bland weather the whole time. But now we see four distinct seasons. And in fact, I was, I was talking to Mike about this, and he was mentioning uh, Joan Didion and in Slouching Towards Bethlehem. I, I forget uh-huh. the name of the essay where she was writing about. She was getting specific exactly in the way you're talking about, uh, describing the, the dry Santa Ana winds that happen in the fall that drive people right. bonkers. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and she manages to turn it into something like that that almost feels like the wind, the way she writes it. This is just a, a little passage of it. I recall being told when I first moved to Los Angeles and was living on an isolated beach that the Indians would throw themselves into the sea when the bad wind blew. I could see why. The Pacific turned ominously glossy during a Santa Ana period, and one woke in the night troubled not only by the peacocks screaming in the olive trees, but by the eerie absence of surf. The heat was surreal. The sky had a yellow cast, the kind of light sometimes called earthquake weather. My only neighbor would not come out of her house for days, and there were no lights at night, and her husband roamed the place with a machete. One day he would tell me that he heard a trespasser. The next, a rattlesnake. On nights like that, Raymond Chandler once wrote about the Santa Ana, every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. Anything can happen. That 
was the kind of wind it was. That's great. Yep. Oh, man. I remember reading that when I first moved out here, and it's like the San Anas there are absolutely the creepiest thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that, I mean, the thing that jumped out at me in in that, in your reading was was, uh, Raymond Chandler's quote, where he sounds like he is of Los Angeles when he writes, you know, meek little wives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husband's necks. Anything can happen. See, is it, that's something is it he would com- say, but not Joe Gideon. <laughs> right, because we assume Los Angeles is all noir and guys in suits and people about to kill each other with knives you know, and stuff, right? It is, yeah. a, it is a place assume? of possibility. <laughs> it, no, he well, understands yeah. it's a place of possibility where anything can happen as opposed mm-hmm. to certain other places. And, you know, we sometimes think of uh, place and regionalism as a form of sentimentalism, you know? You know, like we get, we get, you know, all worked up thinking about our hometowns and stuff. And you certainly could not accuse Joan Didion in that passage of being sentimental now, could you? No. No. There's people roaming around with machetes and shit. <laughs> no, <kidding. laughs> you know, that ain't no Norman Rockwell. No. I wish it were, but, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. In a movable piece by Hemingway, he's writing about his experiences in Paris. And it's the last book he wrote. And, uh. You open up to the first uh, chapter. It's about a good cafe on Place Saint Michel, and Place, you know, means place. And one of the things he talks about is how being away helps him write about where he's from. And I just want to read a brief passage from it. He says, um, "It was a pleasant cafe, warm and clean and friendly. And I hung up my old waterproof on the coat rack to dry and put my worn and weathered felt hat on the rack above the bench in order to cafe au lait." The waiter brought it, and I took out a notebook from a pocket of the coat and a pencil and started to write. I was writing about up in Michigan since it was a wild, cold, blowing day. It was that sort of day in the story. And then he goes on to say a little bit later that away from Paris, I could write about Paris as in Paris. I could write about Michigan. I did not know it was too early for that because I did not know Paris well enough. So, I mean, you know, I think sometimes for a writer to write about where they're from, and you know, Hemingway spent a good deal of time in Michigan, sometimes they need to leave that place to be able to write about the place they're from. Yeah, otherwise it's like trying to take a selfie of your phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's all do that right now. Just get in front of a mirror. You can really expand the whole idea of regionalism, even Latin American writing or European writing. It expands the whole notion of the idea of region. You open a book from a Colombian writer, like Garcia Marquez, and then you can feel that place, that sense of the magic that he's creating. You pick up something from Borges that then you later find out he's a city dweller. He's not going to be writing about that this was a very old, very old man with enormous wings come crashing out from, you know, from out of nowhere in the middle of the field while Palayo was picking up dead crabs. Borges right. is going to be talking about streets. You know, he's talking about the geography or the, the mathematics of, of Buenos Aires, how to, how to make a left turn, right turn. There is no weather. You know, it's right. the place would be a seat. The place would be your place on the bus. The, the, where you sit in a cafe. So that's interesting. I think you can expand the idea to that as well. I think people who are regional writers are called that way because they're not writing in the cultural capital. So when Joan Didion's writing about Los Angeles, 
Los Angeles is a cultural capital, and she'll never be called a regionalist for doing that. Well, but if give you're me an example, uh, give me an example of a of, of a regional writer in a pejorative sense. In a pejorative sense? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think you know sometimes a writer like Willa Cather is sometimes right. typified as a regional writer. Right. Uh, Eudora Welty, know, maybe. Eudora Welty, certainly. Uh, the writer I translate was considered that for a long time uh, in France and still is really to this day. But you say you're using it in a pejorative sense? I think it is used in a pejorative sense, in the sense of universal, maybe they're not right. uh, culturally refined. I mean, that's why Cezanne left Paris, because they thought he was a peasant. Right. Yeah, Borges would call writers that who were writing from outside the city, really hit this one writer named uh, Horacio Quiroga as pro- provincial. Mm-hmm. The provincial writers. I think even Guillermo Poisson was accused of being a, of a provincial writer of some sort. I think that's accurate. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Guillermo well, Poisson. The term itself, regional writer, when did that come to the fore? Was it a uh, just a way for... Uh, literary community or i hate that word um publishers a way to uh, categorize something you know, I, I was thinking about that when when i first came up you know like like i don't know the book world was different then than it is now obviously you know the tv wasn't what it was and everything but my assumption of a regional writer was with a you know with a more with a local press that's what i thought so like mm-hmm. like if you if you're with Alfred A. Knopf, you're not a regional writer. You're a national writer. Yeah, you may right. be writing about a region, but you're, you know, you're backed right. by a national yeah. firm. You know, and I, I think that's, I think that's come to mean something different. Maybe, you know, I know that in the South, everybody's proud of being a, a regional writer, right? Right. Yeah, Southern, without a doubt, it's a great. Great audience for it. Well, also it's great. There's like who was saying that you know it's a place with a lot of richness to it. Chicken on a stick, Mississippi. Oh man, I know. <laughs> chicken on a stick. That's right. Get it at the convenience store. Fried chicken. On a stick. Fried chicken. A freaking convenience store. I remember, especially Borges, when he would talk about provincial writers as being regional. He meant in the sense that. They weren't able to touch any universal themes. He meant like they were so focused on just, you know, they sound more like gossipers, more like, you know, that we seen that next door, you know, that chusma we call it in Spanish. It so, wasn't really hitting any real high notes as far as literature. Sounds like Chekhov. Yeah, but, but he would definitely hit, and I hate to use the term, but re- universal themes, you know, he really would hit high notes in his writing would take him out of that um i think he's also very descriptive exactly you know so like like you know i mentioned before like the the idea of place gives us a reason to explain what we've seen and what our world is like to somebody else when you read Chekhov, you know he spends a lot of time he walks by a river man you're gonna see how it flows Right. And whether there's a rock in the middle of it that the water passes around, you know, he does that a lot. That's a very, very. Do you guys Do you guys know the story Gooseberries by Chekhov? No. Mm-hmm. It's a, It's an amazing story because he at once both you know champions regionalism, but at the same time criticizes it because in the story these two guys are walking around in the fields. They get trapped, caught up in a thunderstorm, and they run to near nearby farm. 
they seek shelter there and they, they go, they bathe and stuff like that. And then one of them tells a story about his brother's farm. It is standing in opposition to the one that they're at. And his brother's farm is just a mess. And the guy loves it. Get one of the gooseberries that he's grown. He takes a bite into it and says, they're delicious. And his brother knows that they're sour and disgusting. And yet the farm that they're at is absolutely magnificent. It's a beautiful farm. So at the one, on the one hand, he's saying that place is, is really does matter. But on the other hand, he's also talking about how we, that we develop sentimental, sentimentality about place that's totally unwarranted. Yeah, you know what? I, I was thinking about, um, you know, you're talking about Chekhov and provincial writing, and I, I was thinking of one writer in particular as two pretty great novels and one of them is considered to be provincial and the other one is considered to be universal. I'm thinking of the Norwegian writer, Knut Hampson. Knut Hampson. I, mean, yeah, I think a lot of people have read his book, Hunger, right? Which yeah. is kind of like a, an intellectual, vagrant, bums, you know, stumbling around Oslo, thinking about heavy philosophical things and he wants to live for art and, you know, literature and all that stuff. And people love this. Mm -hmm. city and it doesn't write growth his, of the soil yeah his masterpiece is growth of the soil which is yeah. just about these ignorant farmers who just start with one piece of land and then people move in from the city if, you know i mean it's it's just a gritty novel full of dumb people in the woods at one point his, his wife you know didn't want the baby so she like strangled it or something and killed the baby and they caught her for it and right. they send her to prison in Toronto. Yeah, you know, and she she's there for a few years, and she comes back, and she's got she's gotten all refined from city living because she learned all, you know, because like, prison was so much more sophisticated than living out in the woods. It's <laughs> 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 great, you know, it's a great, great, love the you know, fantastic book. Right, teaching teaching place and setting in a community college setting is a real hoot. Yeah. <laughs> How do you teach it? Because that depends. That 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 well, that depends on the place that you're where you are. I mean, if if you're if you're teaching at a community college in North Miami or Broward County, and you're taking these kids first year, second year, you know, creative writing students, you basically have to teach them how to write regionally, because they just they just don't know. It's like, well, you know, after class, what are you? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from Haiti. When did you come here? After the earthquake. What part of Haiti? Oh, the part where it's all deforested. Then why don't you put that shit in your short story? Mm. I mean, shit. You know, that material, right? Yeah. It's like you're trying to get them to come out. And, and then I have Jamaican students and students in Trinidad, you know, Trinidad, Tobago, or the Hispanic students were the ones who were always trying to imitate other, you know, they had read Edgar Allan Poe. So you get this weird sounding mystery story that wasn't coming out of their voice or culture or identity. Sure. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Regional sometimes manifests itself in particular ways that are entirely surprising. And uh, I was teaching a cultural anthropology course, and we were talking about blasphemy. I said, uh, you know, take, for instance, you know, God damn it would be a blasphemy. And the students in my class, which, I mean, this is the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. It's the uh, capital of the Pentecostal Church of America, where this community college is at. And they just gasped and they wouldn't look at me. And I said, you know, and, and there's others 
I was kind of surprised. I said, I'm not quite sure why that bothers you because we're like a relatively mild uh, curse word. And they said, oh, you said that and uh, your mama will wash your mouth out. And I said, so if I said something like fucking asshole, she'd be all right with that? And he said, oh, well, no one cares about that. Uh, I, had a, I had a weird experience with that. I was teaching a textbook, a textbook, a novel called Texaco, Patrick Chamoisie. Yeah, it's a good and, French word. And so, so the, the, the reason I was teaching it is like, this is how you start a story. You have an engineer walk into, you know, some guy from Texaco who's coming to your town, who's going to survey because they want to bring in U.S. companies to start you know, extracting oil. And he doesn't get past like the, you know, the, the population sign when someone hits him with a rock and kills him. And that's how the novel begins. So, so one of my students reads this, writes a short story called Jericho. It has a character that's set in Pompano and their Le- Lebanese family that, had come, that come, had come from Detroit, came here from under circumstances, and they were living in Pompano Beach and their dad owned the liquor store. And, and so in their, her opening story, Jericho, the, the prodigal son walks in and he gets hit with a falafel. <laughs> so, so I was like, you know, I am, I'm a genius. I've taught something. She got into, she got into the MFA program with 30 pages of that story. She worked on it after that workshop. She worked on it for like two years. It's like I was telling Mike, you know, I swear, you know, you look at Flannery O'Connor and she's, you know, this Southern writer southern gothic writer that's just totally locked into place you'd think but i i swear i could write a version of a good man is hard to find and set it on mars and it could it would have just as much impact i mean anywhere you go you're going to find a a misfit and some irritable grandmother right right so well it had to do with the authority with which flannery o'connor approached that material that's right. right. She knew it. that was the best thing, the best way she knew how to tell a story like that is in that place. In that place, right? And if your place is Mars, if your place is space, you can tell the same story and set it on Mars, or set it in Kansas, or set it in in uh, on an empty stage somewhere, right. you know, and and it it'll be this. You you can create the same damn story. So what are you saying? Everywhere you go, there you are. Yeah, maybe yeah. I'm just saying there's a, no, nothing that matters. No, I, I guess I'm saying that, that maybe maybe good writing transcends, uses place to put itself out there, but then things emerge, like emergent properties from the story that exist independent of the place it was originally located. Like take Shakespeare, for instance, obviously. You know, you've got West Side Story. You've got all the different modern adaptations. You've got you know, kids' movies that are versions of Twelfth Night and stuff. And they all work, all these different milieus, and it's the same damn story. Well, you're beginning to make a connection there, which is interesting because, so you just don't write about place if you're writing narratives, right? I'm not going to sit outside and just write about a rock. Right. Or Mm -hmm. about the palm tree. Mm -hmm. What you do have is you have this sense of place where a falafel comes in and hits the prodigal son in the head, but you understand the place. So it's it's like it's working part of moving narrative forward establishing character and setting place no the character emerges from the place the character understands the place in which he or she lives right is that what you're saying right but also if you look at beckett's work the place emerges from the character now now let's think about waiting for godot these are two bones right standing 
on a country road by a tree. That is fucking it. There is nothing else. Yeah. And, and it they is know that is their world, you know? I mean, that right. that's real to them. Right. That thing is detailed and rich, even though it's just made up of a few little things. That's the few little things that they have, you know? So the yeah. place works yeah, in that sense. It works great because it's also a crossroads and the tree also functions as a scaffold potentially. <laughs> and then you mentioned there's the mound as well, you know, which I mean, we're supposed to think of potentially a, a, a grave, but I think he, he abstracts very carefully just enough for us to know where they're at. And then the rest follows. Yeah. Well, one, no, no wonder they think life is meaningless. They don't though. They I do, mean, like, don't they? they? I'll tell you what, man, waiting for you though. I've been in this play. It's like I, I don't I think lots of times people talk about waiting for you though and they don't really know that play at all. You know, stuff happens. You know, the the the, the thinker of the two bums, Vladimir, you know, he draws conclusions at the end of each act, you know? Like I mean he gets somewhere as an emotional arc. I mean, I've I've been the character, I've felt it with an audience, you know. You know that this is happening that there's an arc to it but you know people talk about well nothing happens you know so they're well, really gonna read that and if you just read the play it's different from seeing it there's a place issue right there you go oh, yeah. to the play that's right and see this stark set and just these two tramps and that becomes the place you know you become this on this just stark empty nowhere and nowhere becomes somewhere You've gone to the theater. Exactly. The theater itself is yes. part of the place. The city right, and where there's, you there's see references it. References to it. At one point, the, the Vladimir talks that they're talking about the tree, and then you point out to the audience that bog. Right. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Looking out over a fucking swamp. The place I've been to in Rosario, and and you know the theater, and once you go in there and you see everything around you, and you know, the beers are being poured, and uh, you know the raritos and you know empanadas are coming, and all that, and then everything goes dark. Right, you know where you were, but now you're in a different world right. on stage, mm -hmm. and it's very and it's very little, other than, you know, stage props. You know, I mean, you can make a a stool into something magnificent if you can if you can render that in the imagination of the of the audience. So, yeah, that's well, interesting. Well, let's not discount the fact that you're in a dark room, right? Just the the exactly. fact when the lights go down, all of a sudden, wow, this is a mysterious place. Whereas Raymond Chandler would say, anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> anything can happen. <laughs> you know, that makes me want to, well, I got to read a Raymond Chandler. I, I haven't read one of them in 25 years. Oh, I, I think know, my right? dad had some and I read them, but, you know. But you know, it's interesting. There's an intimacy about being in a theater when the lights go down and there's talk and there's action. And I mean, really the only place that that sort of intimacy in the dark occurs is in the bedrooms. So, I mean, it's really close, you know. We keep the lights uh, on at our house, by the way. Is that right? <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Some places you don't want to go. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me. But, you know, I think, uh, I think Mike had some good things to say this week about uh, how place can be an, a sort of engine or fuel for a writer as they're sort of working on a narrative piece because it provides them with a reservoir of detail and imagery that they might use. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wanted to ask Mike, you know, it seems to be sometimes that 
you know, if uh, a writer's really place oriented, it really sort of, it can be that sort of thing that isn't just part of the story, but, you know, is part of their entire aesthetic, the way they approach their writing. So well, I, I was sort of wondering what you thought about that. Well, I, I look at it like a, I think it's a personality thing. Some people are more attached to place than others. People are expected to be attached to place. Like if you're a Western writer, you better be writing about yonder butte. Yep. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sure. But like for me, I, I don't, I don't think like the stories I want to tell are always that complicated and nuanced, you know, but I think, I think the area where they take place is by how all the little things in the world create the way people behave, and, mm-hmm. you know? So <clears throat> That's just the way I'm wired. So everything I write, I mean, everything I've ever written, everything I've published, fiction, it doesn't matter what, is all grounded in absolute spots. You know, at some point I I was on a book tour for my first Columbus, Ohio, and I said that at one of the houses where these repo men came, there was a concrete headless deer in the front yard. And then I was talking to this reporter guy, and he's like, bullshit, you made that up. And I'm like, no! So... We drove out there into the hood, and there that fucking deer was, you know? I mean, like, I, I had a plat book of the city of Columbus, Ohio, and I, I everything that happened in the story was on, you know? That's just my method. That doesn't mean it's right. But I was able to guide my people around a specific world, and then mm-hmm. maybe I didn't have to think about it because I was rendering actual places. So I don't have to think about setting because I was basing it in a real setting. So yeah. maybe I was cheating by doing all that meticulous work. I, 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 I can't explain it. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, for instance, uh, I was uh, reading from a movable feast and, you know, I, I've been to Paris a bunch of times and I actually have tried to go around and locate some of the places that are talked about in that book. And I, I think that maybe Hemingway's making some shit up sometimes. You think? <laughs> yeah. And, and that bastard. Actually, God damn it, Ernie. Well, and, Jesus. And I just noticed this today. He said that, uh, you know, you can, you can take this book, even though it's purportedly a work of nonfiction. He says, if readers prefer, this book may be regarded as fiction. But there's always a chance that such a book of fiction may throw light is fact so you know i think you know uh hemingway was kind of one of these interesting writers who was really place oriented in some of his fiction but then in other pieces of fiction like a clean well-lighted place i mean that's almost like a the the set in godot i mean there's really almost nothing there and the old man z for crying out loud yeah that too <laughs> what do you got a boat <laughs> it's a boat yeah it's not the old man. You got an old man in the sea. Santiago. <laughs> there you are. Game over, man. Game I know. Over. There's a fish Game for a over. while. Damn. Damn sharks. <laughs> Bring it back to town. Oh, I love that book, man. I, I do too. I, for a while, I read that a couple times a year, man. The old man in the sea. What a happy. <laughs> it's uplifting text. But, you know, if you look at, uh, like, uh, the Big Two-Hearted River, which is not the Big Two-Hearted River, again, he's, he's, he's lying about the place where the story takes place. I mean, that's a really place-specific uh, sure. story. You know, on the other hand, uh, the 
place doesn't seem to matter too much. I think, you know, sometimes it's more ideas that matter. And in other cases, I think it's more the experience or the feeling that matters. So, Jim, you'd written, think, some, you'd written something about that in, in our pre-game about the difference between stories that are more emotional uh, versus stories which are thoughtful and idea-based and one using place and one not using place? I, I think place-oriented stories are more about conveying experience and feeling. And I think a, a play like Godot or a story like A Clean, Well-Lighted Place are more about ideas, people struggling with notions about things. Sometimes I wonder if writers who are really focused on place are uh, using place to develop conflicts that generate certain experience that we can share and maybe even the feeling that arises from that experience. But, and I've been reading some Russian novelists here lately, and, and I find in their works that they're much more concerned with ideas, the, the idea of the collective and the collaborative rather than the individual. And in those novels, places is only there to get the story started. And then it's the, the place doesn't matter so much. One sees connection to place because one feels as if one has a claim to that particular spot. You know, if you buy a piece of land, it's recorded in a deed book. That deed book's then recorded in a plat book. You see its relationship to other places in the world. And you know that place. You have staked a claim on that particular place. Whereas if you're someone who's disenfranchised, say a peasant or a slave or something like that, you don't think about yourself in relationship to the manor or the plantation or something like that. And I think even in the, in the Soviet Republic, you weren't so much connected to place as you were to your place in the collective or your place in, you know, whatever your society was. And I think, I think there's a certain sentimentality, but I think there's a certain sentiment that goes along with place. Uh, I just, for some reason, it might be because of my past of working in kitchens and industrial steampunk, steampunk settings, that when I started picking up reading Marx and actually got through Das Kapital to the great parts, where he goes on for six pages giving you the history of the sewing machine mm -hmm. and how the sewing machine became the downfall of bourgeois society at that moment in England and how then the only time that the actual people who were working the sewing machines became conscious of it because there was an oversurplus of them and then they were able, they were being paid with them because they were worth nothing so they were going out selling them. Now they were aware that it was something that they were no longer alienated from the thing that they were right, that they were working. So I actually think it's the opposite with, with Marx, what he's saying, because if you go and you read him, he's so detailed, like he knows exactly the minimum wage in 1953 England. He knows mm -hmm. exactly the act of when they, um, when they, when they passed the act in England, where they started, stopped with child labor, for example, he knew every exact detail and written beautifully rendered in that steampunk mechanical, you know, Marx structure that he, that he came up with in that book. So I think, I think place is, I think the, the way he's talking about it is that one way or the other, the character is going to have to be aware of their place. And if they're not, then it's just ironic tension. Yeah. But it's there and it's, and it's important. I haven't read uh, Marx, or at least I haven't for a long time, but I mean, when he's writing even, okay, so he's nonfiction, right? Right. Does he yeah. get down and give you the nitty gritty descriptive stuff that Absolutely. a fiction writer might? To the point, to the point that it, takes, it blows any fiction writer out of the water. That's the problem. Really? He's like it's it's like a 
a microscope realism. It doesn't take you to the thing. It takes you to the cost. Who made it? Manufactured. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, he, he can take the table down to the, to the, to the dust that he ran his finger across. So that, that's, an, that's a very interesting realism. But something that, I guess, contemporary American writing doesn't want to ever get that close to detail. You know, and you think of like the, 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 the greatest of the Marxist revolutions, the Cuban revolution. That was all about place. That was about this all is about our place, place not, not no, no, but, you know, United Gordon, Fruits place. Exactly. Saying that no, we are no longer victims of a space that was manufactured. We are going to manufacture our space via revolution. Exactly. Right. And I, 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 would, I would add, though, that the point I'm trying to make is that when you look at a revolution like that, that no one really has a personal stake to property. The property is collective. And in that regard, it belongs to all of us, not just me. Times, you know, we're talking about place. Um, I think that it can get confusing because I think, uh, you know, when you think about the, the specific and the particular, um, that this idea of place is one of those things where, is this a place that you want to show to your audience that is something that you're inviting people in or keeping people out of and, uh, and only allowing them to witness it? I don't, I don't know. What do you, what do you mean with the last part about the Cuban, Cuban revolution? That, you know, the, the, the whole idea of private property and having a claim that you would stake into a particular piece of property is something that mm-hmm. is entirely obliterated and uh, belong to the collective, you belong to the island. But, you know, again, I don't know enough about the Cuban revolution to say what the case may be there, but I do know enough about Russian history to know that, you know, despite its weaknesses, that was one of the things I tried to achieve. Well, that was the idea, right? Right. Whether it worked or not is another matter. Well, Marcel is talking about what are the specifics of the particular world that out of that, that idea may have emerged out of is the way I hear it. Yeah. Like when you're, you know, you have, you have people who are, uh, you know, disconnected from the, from the, um, products of their labor and you show you show their labor you show their products right you show who gets it and then you don't have to you don't have to sit there and and write a philosophical treatise about it it emerges from the actual circumstances of the world and the thing i always took from marx was it was that he's not saying this is the way things should be he's he's saying this is the way things are going to be inevitably because specifically this is the way things are right Yes, proven through example and through the dialectic. I think I yurtle the turtle this week, which is Let's you know it. anti. I did uh, read it my my grandson's first grade class. And speaking of place, so you gave a reading the other day. I, I did give a reading. I read. Uh, I went over and bought another uh, copy of uh, Yurtle the Turtle. They came marching back in from uh, after their lunch. They go out on the playground to wear off a little energy, and they come trooping back in. And my grandson came in and uh, said, uh, "Hi, Grandpa," and uh, sat down right in front of me. And uh, the rest of the class sat down too. And I was in a uh, <laughs> they even have a, a rocking chair at the front of the room. <laughs> I'm not the only, yeah, not the only awesome. mystery reader. <laughs> I sat down in this rocking chair and I read uh, I read Yertle the Turtle and. Uh, 
Buzz and the Big Brag to them. They're all in the all in the Yertle the Turtle book. Yeah. Oh, nice. Same book. Yeah, all in the same book. I used to read it to uh, it, my grandson. I used to read it to his mother. So. Oh. Can I read you the opening page? Yeah, let's hear it. Because it's about place. Here it is. You'll know you'll know right away if you're not familiar with Yertle the Turtle who the author of this is, brother. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Jane Austen. Uh, on the far away. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, <laughs> On the far away island of Salamasan, the turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm. There was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need, and they were all happy. <laughs> Quite happy indeed. Yeah. Wait, what happens next? Oh, well, I don't have the book with me. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> you memorized it. I love it. <laughs> it's, you're, you're, the, you're the turtle king. And he, he's the king of the pond, and he, he decides that he needs to have a throne that's bigger than the, this rock he's sitting on. So he orders the turtles to come and make a stack of turtles. And he sits up on top and he brags about all the things he can see. That's awesome. Are, are you saying it was turtles all the way down? <laughs> well, the, you know, the, the turtles, you know, and the, the first little turtle down there, his name is Mac. And he, he complains, you know, your majesty, please, you know, we have rights too. You know, we're feeling pain down here. <laughs> and, and the turtle, Yertle, the turtle told him to shut up and, um, because he was king, and he was just a, <laughs> he was just a little turtle named Mac. Oh. And, uh, but he burped. The... Mac ended up sneezing, and it brought down the uh, throne of the king. Not, but burped or sneezed, one of the two. There's the place. There's your sense of place. Is Yertle a, a product of place, or is the place determine how what kind of a turtle Yertle is? Well, Yertle was kind of tran Chitin transcending Day, his place, right? Yeah. Going yeah, beyond. Yes, he, he was attempting to. Yeah. Going beyond. And the irony is that since they lived their own places, which are shells, and they were stacked on top of each other. <laughs> a place within a place. <laughs> this is a place within a place. So it's metafiction. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have the finest minds in America assembled here tonight. Today. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm more curious about what you guys tell your students what I do. I mean, I tell my students, you know, that setting matters in some stories because it's a good source of details. But I, you know, we all know that there's stories where setting matters only enough to get characters together, and then other things happen. So I'd be sort of interested to hear what you guys tell people or advise writers. Well, I can tell you what I've been told when it comes to. Description, for instance, is uh, it's always filtered through character. Like when somebody walks into mm -hmm. a room, you know, if I walk into a room and I describe it, first thing I'm going to notice is a grand piano over in the corner. A buddy fr of, of mine from, an uh, art lover from Kansas is going to walk in and he's going to see the Thomas Hart Benton etching on top of the piano, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to John McNally, he's, he always said that he grew up in kind of a rough, lower, middle-class, tough neighborhood in Chicago. He says, to this day, when he walks into a room, the first thing he looks for is something you can use for a weapon, right? Mm 
<laughs> so 10 different people are going to describe a scene 10 different ways, depending on what their needs are. And what they choose to highlight or describe or whatever is going to tell you something about their character, as opposed to just, you know, right. objective, you know, omniscient world building. So what you're saying is that the character in the story is going to determine what's important. Well, as people, to what as, they people, as people do, great. that's just human nature, I think. You don't see everything. Nobody sees everything omnisciently. Jim talked about earlier about, uh, he's mentioned a couple of times about uh -oh, Mike's sentimentality, singing. about sentimentality of place. You know, doesn't that make it, doesn't that, uh, the sentimentality of place, it's good sentimentality. I grew, I grew a town of 350 people uh, right outside Des Moines, little farm community, and I go back there now, and the town is pushing 6,000. And wow. the town that I grew up in is surrounded by new housing tracks, people coming out from Des Moines, and they, they want to get into this the school district where I grew up. And I go back there, and there's not a I see that is familiar. And this is the little town that I grew up in. Right. And I can and I'm I'm in the part of the town that's that's where I grew up, the the town of the 350, and it's everything's familiar except for me. Other people on the street there, they know each other, but nobody knows me. And I grew up in the fucking place. That's a strange sense of alienation. A sense of, a sense of place, and there's a little bit of resentment. It's a weird sense of place when you, yeah. when you go through that, when you experience that. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. You know, my mom grew up in a small town, in a farm south of a small town in Kansas. And, you know, we've gone back there over the years and experienced exactly what you're talking about. You know, the farmhouse mm -hmm. itself is, is falling down and being, the weeds are yeah. pulling it right down into the earth, you know, because it's abandoned now. And yeah. Sad, you know, isn't very it? complex feelings. Yeah, you bet. Show me the way to go home. Yeah, we do. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago. Right to my head. You fellows know this? Yeah, we're gonna need a bigger phone. There's a local Land word. Or yeah, see your phone. Do we get karaoke night? Oh, yeah. I thought we'd all sing it together. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Bethlehem, Kansas. Person. No, listen. I, is this going to turn into turn two turntables and a microphone? Yes, I just turned the, I just turned the microphone to the piano because I'm going to give you guys a little music lesson. Because I think this home thing is so universal it occurs in music. Like say, let's talk about place. Say we're going to do the key of C, right? Okay, tonally that's a certain place. Unlike D, which is different place, right? But we're going to stay in C. So every note of the chord, every note of the scale, you can make a chord over. So you can go. So the whole deal about, this is how I was taught harmony at Berkeley, is that it's a journey. That here is your tonic chord. This is home, right? This is where we live. This is the fireplace, the hearth and everything. 
And music is a journey that takes you further and further away from it. And the further you go away, the more you have tension of wanting to pull you back so that when you finally do resolve and go home, it's incredibly satisfying. So you've got a song like... Take me home! Take me home, man! <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> we got you there on the five chord. That's as far away from home as you can get in the C key of C. And you hang there, it's like, no, dude, don't leave me here. Resolve it. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you've, that dynamic in music, I mean, to me, it says that there's like a fundamental thing beyond words, beyond music, whatever, that, 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 we're we're yearning for a central place for a for a place that we can call home and that so much so much tragedy dissonance tension conflict occurs from us being forced out of our homes wanting to go back to our homes venturing away uh, you know tessa the d'urbervilles lost in the in the out of her out of her village wilderness it's 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 all over literature so anyhow, that's my that little is, musical interlude. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> the kids, I think Bob's kids will like that part. <laughs> so, so, so is that the source of the expression, take us home, when uh, musicians are playing and it's the end of the a set or something like that? Or take us home? Yeah, you know what? It could, it, not consciously, but... Hey, Rick, why don't you take us home? Take us home, right? And is and you that know that when I'm on? done, we're going to be on the tonic chord. Is and that what it is? Huh? That's the tonic. It's home. It's the chord built upon the first note of the scale. It's the same. And I'll tell you what. You know, I I asked my wife today. I said, Deborah, we're doing a, a show about place in literature. I said, so, what's your thought about that? And she said, she just looked at me. And she said, find your happy place. Find your happy place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for me, it's uh, Wednesday nights. Wednesday I think so, night. too. Wednesday nights here with the Acme Writing Academy, where we have taken the idea of place and wrestled it to the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's lots of really interesting things. We done killed here. it. Yeah. Magnuson, oh, do you have a do you have a to, do you have like a couple paragraphs left? Man. No, I, I don't even have a syllable left. <laughs> but I, you, you know, Mike, can I ask I you to go, go ahead and summarize because uh, I think you're probably taught this sort of stuff more than the rest of us, uh, or at least given this sort of advice or coaching. So, wait, we're giving uh, advice now. Well, I think you know, we always like to try and tie it back to writing, don't we? I hope so. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Guess so. On you. I got nothing. I hear the theme music creeping up. Yeah. We've gone on well long enough, ladies and gentlemen. I think we have. We're going to say goodnight. Thank you all for tuning in, eavesdropping, hanging out with us. On behalf of these guys scattered all over the country in their own places, wherever they are, this is Rick Crisman wishing you a pleasant night and happy writing. Mm-hmm.
chance to make up to let this go.